This weekend, we're going to spend some time together talking about some Christian life hacks. It's been about eight years since I've been able to uh, present any messages here at, at Advent Hope, and I'm very excited about um, some of these messages and some of the specific points I'll be sharing because they've, they've had an impact in my life, and I hope they will in your life. Much of what I'm going to say this weekend is very, very simple. It's nothing that probably will be new to most of you. How many of you are familiar with the term life hacks? Have you, some of you, how many of you have never heard the term life hacks? Oh, a majority, okay. If, if you look, if you go to Google and you type in life hack or life hacker or something like that, you'll get a lot of simple hints that can make your life easier. I, I think I included some examples here. Um, here you go. When heating leftovers, space out a circle in the middle, it will heat up much more evenly. That's a life hack. Don't you just hate it when you're heating up spaghetti and part of it is really hot and the rest of it is cold? At least that happens to me. And this is an example of a life hack that you can find out there on the internet. There's thousands of these things that might make your life a little bit easier. Um, Here's another one. I hate it when my pots boil over. So if you just put a wooden spoon across the top of the pot, when the foam starts to rise, well, it'll hit the wooden spoon and go back, and it just won't boil over. So, you know, simple thing to try. Um, and you'll find more of these things on the end. Here's another one. Use a can opener to open blister packs and avoid cutting yourself. You know, something very simple that somebody thought of that, you know, might make your life easier if you open a lot of blister packs. So the sermons I'm going to share are Christian life hacks, how we can live the Christian life more simply, more effectively, and I think probably the key word is simple. In fact, the sermon this evening has only two points, Um, and the sermon tomorrow morning has only two points, uh, two life hacks, and the sermon tomorrow afternoon has only one. So hopefully very, very simple. This evening we're going to look at only one text, one passage from 1 John. Tomorrow for uh, the Advent Hope Sabbath School time, we're going to look at one passage, actually two passages, I'm sorry, from the writings of Paul. And I'm most excited, I think, about tomorrow afternoon. I think it's 4 o'clock right here. I'm going to share a message that kind of brings everything together. It, it brings together a big picture. It'll be based on John chapter 17. And that, I think, is a very powerful chapter, and I'm extremely excited about that. I want to share a side note before we pray and read our passage from 1 John. This is an observation. I can't prove it to you, but I think in my own life it's true. And I think it might be true for a lot of other people. And that is that I'm just going to guess based on who comes out on Friday nights from Advent Hope. I'm going to guess that this group of people here is very negative. By that, I don't mean that we're critical or we have negative vibes about people or that we, you know, we 
see the negative side of things. I don't mean you're pessimistic. I don't mean you're unhappy. I don't mean I'm these way, this way as well, so I'll include myself in this. What I do mean is that, again, I'm guessing about who you are because I don't know some of you. We as a group resonate with the negative commands of Scripture more than the positive commands. And you know Scripture has both. The Ten Commandments would be a good example. At least eight and a half of the commandments are negative commands. Don't do this. But there are positive commands in Scripture too. Love your neighbor as yourself. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. You know, whatever it is. There are positive commands of Scripture too. I believe that for myself, and I'm betting for this group of people, in general, we resonate with the negative commands of Scripture more than the positive commands. And this has a tendency toward legalism. And so what I'm going to share this evening and tomorrow, there's only two points. One of them is what not to do. It's a negative command. And the other is what to do. It's a positive command. But keep in mind this concept as we go forward uh, through this weekend, that we want to understand both the negative and the positive commands of Scripture, and we want to pay attention to both of them because they're both important. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear God, I ask that we will understand the commands of Scripture that through this very simple message, the words of the Bible will speak to us and that we will learn something new that we can apply in our own lives to help us walk the Christian walk more simply. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Very familiar passage, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. I put it up on the screen here in case some of you don't have your Bibles. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Very simple. What's the negative command in this scripture? Don't love the world. You know, that's a negative command. Very simple. Now, as we'll see in a moment, this is more of a spiritual concept of not loving the world. But let's start very, very, very simple, very concrete in our thinking. Don't love this planet as a geographical location. Don't love this existence. Don't love the world. Don't love planet Earth. What should we love as, as far as geography goes? We should love heaven, that's right. In fact, there's uh, at least three passages that I came up with right off the top of my head. I listed them here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.18. We don't look at those things which are seen. We look at those things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal. They're temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. They're the real things that are going to last. 2 Corinthians 5.1. We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, just went away, well, we have something more permanent. We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And probably the clearest, talking about loving the world versus not loving the world, Colossians 3, 1 and 2, famous passage. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, 
where Christ sits on the right hand of God, set your what? Your affection, your love, what you like, what you think about. Set your affection on things above and not on things of this world. So as a geographical location, don't love this planet. Now, this should be pretty easy, I would think. You know, don't love this world. Um, love heaven. I mean, how many of us are looking forward to going to heaven, right? We all want to go to heaven. But as I thought about this, I think that at least in my own life, and maybe in yours too, sometimes we say we want to go to heaven, but sometimes it, maybe we don't. And I'll give you one good example that I'll bet applies to almost everybody in this room, at least at one point in your life. Um, I remember thinking this way when I was young, younger than I am now. Um, we all want Jesus to come back. That's, you know, we're, we are Adventists. You know, we're looking forward for the Advent. But how many of you have at least thought that, well, don't raise your hands. I won't ask you to do that. How many of you have thought this way? Jesus, please come soon, but don't come until I have a chance to get married. You know, you know some of you are laughing, and I, I know that probably 99 point, oh wait, I don't know how many people are in this room, probably 98% of the people in this room have thought this at least one time or another in their lives. Jesus, I want you to come back, but please don't come back until I can get married. Or maybe it's something else in your life. Please don't come back until after the big game on Sunday or after this field trip that I'm going to on with my school friends or at least until I get a girlfriend. You know, Jesus, come back, but not until after some other event. Why do we think that way? You know, there's only two reasons I could come up with. One of the reasons that people might think that way, you know, don't come until I get married, is we do look forward to going to heaven, but we believe that this existence, the physical existence that we have on this planet, has at least a few bright points that are better than heaven. The marriage relationship is the example I used here. And we must really believe that if we pray, Dear Jesus, please don't come until I have a chance to get married. We think that marriage is better than heaven. I think that's fair to say. I think we lack information. You know, people who think that way, myself, when I thought that way, I think we just lack information about how good heaven really is. The only other thing I could come up with is we don't really believe heaven exists, or maybe we just don't believe it's as real as this existence, this planet. We lack faith. So in one case, we lack information. In the other case, we lack faith. And faith's pretty important, don't you think? You've heard terms like justification by faith and righteousness by faith and all these things. If we lack faith, that's a pretty big deal. You know, marriage is wonderful, I can testify. I love my wife. I love my children. But is it really better than heaven? Can you think of someone who thought that marriage was better than paradise? Is there someone who traded paradise for his love for a woman? Adam. 
Yeah, there's a few other people as well, but uh, Adam thought that the creature was more to be loved than the creator, and he chose wrong, you know? Think about uh, those of you who are married, or those of you who are looking forward to marriage. If you believe that marriage is more to be desired than heaven, it's very easy to think of you know, persecution on the order of the kind of persecution Revelation talks about where you might have to choose between your spouse and your Savior. And if you believe, if you have this mindset that Jesus don't come until I get married, you love the world. You love the things of the world. And when push comes to shove, you will, just like Adam, make the wrong decision. I thought these things through in my own life, and I had to admit that, you know, maybe this not loving the world thing is a little bit more that I need to think about. Because I knew that I had thought that way in the past. Jesus said, you remember Luke 14, 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. This isn't even talking about end-time persecution. This is talking about a prerequisite for entering into a discipleship relationship with Jesus. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Martin Luther had it down. You remember the hymn tune. I hope that I believe, just like he did, that heaven is so real, I'm willing to let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's keep going in the verse, though. Don't love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Why not, according to the verse? What's the rest of the verse say? Why shouldn't we love the world? Say again? Because if we do, it indicates the love of the Father is not in us. <clears throat> I think this is uh, pretty important because it demonstrates that this really is a heart issue. I was probably in 11th grade, and I was homeschooling at the time, and my parents took me to a homeschool seminar that was helpful. It was at that seminar that I learned that dating was evil. <clears throat> and as someone in 11th grade, this was helpful information for me. Um, I think it saved me from a lot of problems that my peers went through. Um, but do you know what? The appeal at that seminar was very strongly, don't love the world. You know, don't love the ways of the world, this kind of thing. And it wasn't a heart issue. It wasn't made to be a heart issue. It was an appeal to avoid the worldliness around. And that was helpful. There's nothing wrong with that. It saved me from, in this case, bad relationships. The same kind of appeal has saved me in the past from drugs, uh, cigarettes, smoking, um, alcohol. I never really had much of a temptation to do those things, but there was an obvious appeal growing up, don't love the world. And that was helpful. 
but it was never really made clear why not. It really is a heart issue. We need the love of the Father in our hearts, otherwise no change will be lasting. And I can testify to that in my own life. I never did take up cigarette smoking, but there have been other temptations in my life. In fact, we'll mention some of them here in the next few slides. That I have tried to avoid because I knew they were in that group of things that were of the world. But my heart was not changed. And so because of that, the struggle against the world was never successfully won long term. It was always a short term victory and then fall. Victory, then fall. Victory, then fall. We need a heart change. 1 John 2.16 tells us what things are in the world. Verse 15 says, don't love the world, don't love the things that are in the world. And verse 16 lists off what things are in the world. This is a nice summary. What are the three things in the world? Lust of the flesh, lust of the... and the pride of life. Yeah. I'm not going to spend too long on these because I'll bet that you've already heard sermons about how Eve fell in all three of these areas. You remember Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desired to make one wise. And don't kid yourself, this wasn't trying to pass a test or become a little bit smarter. She wanted to be wiser than God or at least wiser than God wanted her to be. It was a pride issue. Eve fell because of a temptation in all three of those areas. You've probably also heard sermons about how Jesus overcame in the same three areas that Eve fell. Luke 4, starting in verse 3, the devil says to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And you know Jesus had already been fasting for over a month. I want to kind of take a, a detour again on this passage because I think this is especially applicable to perhaps this area and also specifically to those of you in higher education. It was not only a temptation to eat food. Sure, Jesus was hungry. Sure, it looked good to eat to Eve, but the underlying temptation was a temptation to vindicate God's word. And that is a huge temptation. Again, I'm generalizing, but I'll bet anything. This is a huge temptation for those of you in this room. Because I know that you run into people every day who doubt God's word. Is that true? Yeah, you meet plenty of people that way. They doubt God's word. And in fact, when you get into discussions with them, there will come a temptation to you to stand up for God's word and vindicate God's word in the eyes of an unbeliever. Don't do that. You will almost never change someone's mind if they have chosen to doubt God's word. The same thing will happen to you that happened to Eve. Satan just had to get her into a conversation. Did God really say? Well, and then she had to come back with, no, well, actually, this is what God said. And, oh, really? 
and Satan mixed her up. He confused her. She was trying to vindicate God's word, vindicate God's character, set the record straight. This is what the Bible really says. God said about Jesus, this is my beloved son. Satan said, if you are God's son, then do this and this. Jesus didn't fall for it, and you shouldn't either. That was all a side note. Going back to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus overcame in the area of the uh, lust of the flesh. Um, Next, verse 5, the devil took him up into a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Of course, he hid the ugly parts, but Satan showed Jesus all the beautiful things of all the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give it all to you, all the glory of them. It's delivered to me and whoever I want to, I give it to. And Jesus didn't fall for that one either. Finally, the pride of life, uh, Satan took him up in verse 9 to a pinnacle of the temple, said, if you're the son of God, cast yourself down. It is written. The ancient Jewish document, the, I can't pronounce this, Pasikta Rabati, records a traditional belief the Messiah would show himself to Israel standing on the roof of the temple. If Jesus did what Satan suggested, everybody would have accepted him as the Messiah, especially if the angels caught him or he dashed his foot against a stone, if you will. This would have been amazing proof to all of Israel that here was the Messiah to fulfill their their grandest hopes. This was the pride of life. Jesus could have appeared as people were expecting him to, as a conquering king. Are these three things still problems today? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life? You know, they are. And when I hear terms like this, I think of things like immorality, pornography, and adultery, and things of that nature. And you know, that's true, but maybe we should take a step back. You remember the sin of Sodom wasn't predominantly homosexuality. The sin of Sodom, Ezekiel 16.49 tells us, was pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. I don't know. We'll talk about pride in a moment, but what about fullness of bread? Is that a problem today? The BMI of Americans attests to the fact that fullness of bread is a problem today. Lust of the flesh. Uh, I don't know about you. Is is fullness of bread a problem here at Advent Hope? It is for me. Does that look familiar? It's not so much uh, that table at Potluck that gets me, it's more of the dessert table that gets me. But how about it? Tomorrow if you go to Potluck or wherever you go to eat, just before you go through the line, say, Jesus, why don't you show me what you want me to eat? Is that too practical? You know, Jesus cares about our health. He wants us to overcome in some of these areas. What about uh, abundance of idleness? Is that a problem in the United States? Yeah, this is where it gets uh, pretty close for me. You all recognize some of those things? Um, I was reading one of those magazines on the plane, and it was some amazing number. Every, I don't remember the exact number, but it was something about every minute, 24 hours a day, it's something like two or 300 hours of video is uploaded to YouTube. Every minute. 
That's amazing. People have a lot of free time, don't they? Um, Rachel and I recently decided that we weren't spending our free time appropriately, and uh, as some of you know, we've tried to cut back on our Facebook usage. Did you know that Facebook is addictive? Um, it is. If, if you haven't tried cutting back on your Facebook use, try it sometime and see what happens. You'll find out that Facebook is a drug, just like a lot of other things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, and um, here in Ezekiel, abundance of idleness. Now, let's go back to uh, thinking about the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. I don't want to spend a lot of time going into each one of those, but let's consider what all three of them have in common. The common characteristic for these three things is a focus on self. What is it that will please me? What is it that will lift me up, make me look better in the eyes of others? And what's the opposite of it in the passage? It's the love of the Father. What is the love of the Father? You thought about that as a concept? You know, the love of the Father is the basic principle that God operates on. It is a basic principle of complete other-centeredness, complete self-sacrificing abasement, complete self-surrendering love for the sake of others. It's the complete opposite of the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And this principle, this idea that God is completely a self-denying God, a completely unselfish God, this is the core of the great controversy. This is what it's all about. This is why there's a battle between good and evil. I don't know if you've thought about this much, but Satan does not have to prove that God is a bad guy. Satan doesn't have to prove that God is evil or even that he is completely selfish, that he's acting out of self-interest. All Satan has to demonstrate to win the great controversy is that sometimes, maybe just one time, God acts based on self-interest. And if God does it, then it's okay for Satan, it's okay for you, and it's okay for me to act out of self-interest, act selfishly. Can you see why it might be a little bit hard for God to win the great controversy? He doesn't just have to show that he's unselfish most of the time. God has to prove that the only way the universe can work is for everybody in this room, everybody who's going to live forever in heaven, to act 100% of the time based on unselfish love. Do you believe that? I know we say we do, but I'm not sure we do. I'm not sure I do. It's easy to test if you really believe that God is 100% unselfish all the time. You will never, ever worry. You'll never be anxious. Why be anxious? If God is 100% unselfish and he cares for you, he loves you with an unselfish love, it doesn't matter what happens to you. Whether you live or you die, God has a plan for you. He'll take care of you. 
He has a place for you in heaven. There won't be any anxiety. There won't be any care. On the other hand, I'm speaking to myself here, what if you're not sure? What if sometimes throughout the day you forget? Maybe you don't know if um, God really is 100% unselfish. Maybe sometimes he forgets about you. Maybe sometimes he acts on his best interests and not yours. Maybe, maybe he doesn't even exist. If any of these doubts exist in your mind, even at times, well, there's a lot of room in life for anxiety. There's a lot of room for worry. And we're going to talk more about that tomorrow. I was um, in the Phoenix airport, and I pulled this up. See, there's two ways to try to, to overcome, and I've already alluded to them, but I thought this was kind of amusing, so I thought I'd share it. There's two ways to try to become perfect. How many of you want to become perfect? You know, all of us you know, want to become perfect, right? Well, turns out there was this guy named Benjamin Franklin. Have you ever heard of Benjamin Franklin? How many of you ever read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography? A few of you? Maybe you remember that Benjamin Franklin decided one day that he wanted to become perfect. I'll read a few uh, choice quotes here because he's an excellent writer and I just think it's hilarious. It was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew or thought I knew what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. Kind of logical. But as soon as I found I had undertaken a task of much more difficulty than I had imagined. And so he goes on to explain how he decided he was going to become perfect. And this is what he did. First of all, he made a list of 13 virtues. They are temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. More about humility in a moment. And then he made a book. This is a page out of the book that he reproduced in his uh, autobiography. Here we go. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sabbath. And then he listed on this side an abbreviation for those 13 virtues. And when he found that he had transgressed, if you will, in any given virtue, he'd put a black mark in there. This is just a representation. He actually got a big old ledger and uh, made it permanent and put big black marks in it. And um, my intention being to acquire the habititude of these virtues, I judged it would be well not to distract my attention by attempting the whole at once, but to fix on them one at a time, and when I should be master of that, then to proceed to another, and so on, till I should have gone through the thirteen, and as the previous acquisition of some might facilitate the acquisition of certain others, I arranged them with that view, such as they stand above. Temperance first, as it tends to procure that coolness and clearness of head, which is so necessary where constant vigilance was to be kept up, and so on. And he goes through. I won't bore you with the details. He explains why he put them in the order that he did. He's going to go through one at a time. And he calculated it ought to take him about two weeks to become perfect in any of these areas. So he figured that in about 26 weeks, he should be able to obtain, uh, attain to uh, moral perfection. He was very, um, very logical. 
So um, he talks then about his experience. Uh, but on the whole, though I never arrived at the perfection I had been so ambitious of obtaining, but fell far short of it, he found out. Yet by the endeavor, I was a better and a happier man. He talks about why he added humility there as well. My list of virtues contained at first but twelve, but a Quaker friend, having kindly informed me I was generally thought to be proud, that my pride showed itself frequently in conversation, that I was not content with being in the right when discussing a point, but was overbearing and rather insolent. He convinced me by mentioning several instances. I endeavored to cure myself of pride, if I could, and so he added humility to the bottom of his list. And then he talks about how he did. I cannot boast of much success in acquiring the reality of this virtue, but I had a good deal with regard to the appearance of it. <laughs> in reality, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, it is still alive, and will every now and then peep out and show itself you will see it, perhaps, often in this history, for even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. So, sorry about that. Um, so much for Ben Franklin. Um, what's the other way? The other way is outlined in our passage starting in verse 15, and that is to have the love of the Father in our heart. You see, there's no way that we can force ourselves not to love this world. It doesn't work. I can tell you from my own experience, whether it's uh, relationships or YouTube or Facebook or going through the line at Potluck, it doesn't matter. Pick anything in your life. It doesn't work. Benjamin Franklin did not have the answer. The answer is to have the love of the Father in our hearts. Verse 17 uh, has another way of stating this. The world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. Why does the world pass away in its lust? Well, you know, anything that's based on selfishness will pass away because it is built on selfishness. It's built on taking. It has to pass away. And this is the same reason that those who have the love of the Father and do His will don't. We've seen that this passage tells us what not to do, and that is don't love the world. This verse tells us what to do, and that is do the will of God. Verse 15 told us the only way to do the will of God is to have the love of the Father in our hearts. It's only two points. Very, very simple. First point, don't love the world. That's the negative command. And it's helpful, but by itself, it, you will not be successful. The second point, have the love of God in your heart. This is from Steps to Christ. I'm sure you're familiar with the quote, wonderful book. Many accept an intellectual religion, a form of godliness when the heart is not cleansed. Let it be your prayer, create in me a clean heart, O God. 
and renew a right spirit within me. Deal truly with your own soul. Be as earnest, as persistent as you would be if your mortal life were at stake. This is a matter to be settled between God and your own soul, settled for eternity. A supposed hope and nothing more will prove your ruin. Friends, we need that new heart. We need a heart filled with the love of God. And I know that in my own life, I have focused, I don't want to say too much, but I focused on the negative commands of Scripture to the exclusion, perhaps, of the positive commands of Scripture. And the negative commands are important. Perhaps one of the reasons God gives us the negative commands of Scripture is to reveal to us our great need. And each one of us have great needs. Love not the world. I don't know what each one of you are struggling with this evening. I know what I struggle with. And all of us, I think, love the world more than perhaps we're even willing to admit. Remember the message to the church of Laodicea, which you know, applies to us. It's Jesus desperately trying to get across to us our true condition. And so I'd ask that as we have closing prayer, each one of you ask God, in what ways do I love the world? Please show them to me. And then take a step further. Accept the positive command of Scripture to have the love of God within your heart to work from the inside out. Create in me a clean heart. After I have prayer, I'd invite each one of you to sing with me. We're going to sing the um, old familiar song, Into My Heart. Okay. Please bow your heads with me. Dear God, you know each person here. You know the struggles. You know the temptations. You know perhaps more than we do. Well, you do know more than we do. In each case, where the tendency toward clinging more tightly to this world and less tightly to the things of heaven exists in our hearts. I ask that you would help us to value the things of heaven more than we value the things of earth. Help us to think about heaven. Think about heavenly virtues. Think about Christ. Think about his sacrifice for us more than we consider the opposite, the selfishness that exists here on this planet, even the selfishness that exists in our own hearts. Help us to focus on Jesus. Please give each one of us the love of God, that basic principle of the great controversy, unselfish, other-centered, caring, affection, willingness to be poured out for the good of others. I ask that this principle will work in each one of our lives and that the work you have begun in us, you will complete until the day of Christ. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.